0: God, I thank you that we can know you because of Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that, that while we can, can sing and celebrate a theology, a doctrine of what we believe, that Lord, even that is secondary to who you are and what you did for us in Jesus Christ, may we continue to celebrate him and celebrate what it is that we know to be true, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May that be the song on our lips today as we go, for it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Please, have a seat. Have a seat. Grab your Bibles. I hope you have a Bible with you. If you don't, then I'm going to encourage you to go ahead to the back and and take one of the Uniontown Bibles. You can bring that home with you. You can, I mean, I wouldn't suggest using it for firewood, but this might be the time of year to do that. We have trackers in there. We'll know if you did it, and then you'll have this mysterious pastoral visit. Just kidding. How are you doing this morning? Good. Everybody still on track with your resolutions? Good. That's encouraging, because I didn't even make any, so I guess I'm still on track. I think that's how it works, but I'm not exactly positive. So, um, yeah. Yeah, last week was fun in a sick and twisted kind of way. Um, I really did enjoy last week and, and having the opportunity to to dig into a a passage that um, has continued to work me over. Um, This week, I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain. Um, There are many weeks, most weeks, especially when I'm I'm preaching through uh, anything that Paul wrote. Um, You can open up your Bible and you can look and you can see what Paul writes and just be like, oh, that's easy. I know exactly what to say, how to say it, and how to apply it to Uniontown Bible Church here in 2017. Um, This week... I feel like I had a good grasp on what it was that Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 2, which is where we're going to find ourselves. I felt like I could explain it to any of of you, even myself. I can explain it to my kids. That's the true test. But I really wrestled and struggled with how to apply it um, graciously. If you remember last week, I told you Paul's angry in this book. And it would be easy just to like let it rip, and but I don't want to do that. So instead, what happened in God's incredible sense of humor is um, Saturday afternoon I was sitting in my my office and I was just kind of reading through a couple things, and I was struck with this amazing thought that Galatians two this week isn't for you, it's for me. That thought stinks. It's easier, parents, you know this, it's easier to tell your kids what they're supposed to do than it is to do it yourself. And so this, uh, uh, (laughs) God worked me over pretty good. Um, In so doing, what He did was He pointed out a lot of little sidebar things throughout the passage, so I'm going to jump out of what the main point is and then point out some other things and then hopefully get back to the main point. That's usually an exercise in futility for me, um, but we'll see what happens Last week, I think really the the point that stood out to me the most and and seemed to have the most uh, impact in discussions afterwards was the two questions that we wrestled with. The first one being, how many of you know that God loves you? And in in, in all, I'm talking, we were probably 95 to 98% raised their hand. I know God loves me. So the next question is, How many of you feel like God likes you? And that was a resounding thud. And uh, God's laid that on my heart, continued to lay that on my heart, even moving forward with, that's really where we need to focus, not only in Galatians, but throughout the year here at Uniontown Bible Church to understand what it is that God thinks when he sees us. It changes everything when you understand how God feels about you. And that's kind of where we're going this morning. So I want to begin with this. This is a prayer that Paul tells the Ephesian church that he's been praying for them. And he says this, For this reason, I have bowed my knees before the Father, from, every whom, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner, inner, bearing, inner being. I'm going, to, I'm going to have a word morning, huh? So that, this is why he's praying that you would have the power of the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." You see all those contradictions in there. I want you to know the love that cannot be known. I want you to grasp and the, be filled with what is already full, so how do you cram more in there? And my prayer this morning is this, that when we leave today, we would be overwhelmed with what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love that God has for you. Um... <laughs> Last week we defined the gospel as this, I'll just jump into this. This is, this is the gospel, it's the declaration of the good news that though we were separated from God by our sin, and we are helpless to do anything about it ourselves, that God loved us and sent His Son who died for us and who rose from the grave, defeating sin and death forever. When we talk about that truth, that is what it means to declare the gospel, but as we talked about last week, a lot of times we kind of drift away from the gospel. We we go to the gospel of resolution, where I'm going to do better this year, or the gospel of education and teaching, where it's like you know Jesus taught, and so I just want to follow Jesus' teachings and follow His example. And we talked about how how useless that was and futile that was, how that was cruel. It was almost like walking up to a person who is drowning and throwing them a book about how to do the backstroke, or jumping in the water next to them and be like, "See, just do this, you'll be fine." There's nothing more cruel than that. They don't need a book. They don't need an example. They need a savior. They need to be rescued. We talked about how the, the, the gospel of morality kind of slips in there. And then finally, we rested in the gospel of legalism and talked about how legalism has kind of crept on the scene into many churches, into all of our hearts in one way or another. And it was robbed the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And I want to be clear I'm not talking about Christian liberty. I have the freedom to do what I want. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about freedom, it literally is having the chains chains burst off of your hands and feet, the shackles being removed for you so you are no longer a slave to sin. That's what freedom means. And unfortunately, what happens is legalism throws you back into the cell. So Paul here, it's very interesting, in Galatians 2, this is what God has impressed upon my heart, is that, that Paul in Galatians 2 is, is telling us a few things, not the least of which is this, you are accepted in God's eyes. But I want to be clear, you're accepted in God's eyes, not based on what you do. That's our first point this morning. You are, your acceptance in God's eyes isn't based on what you do. Let me read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 this morning. It says this. Um, let me, let me, quick, before I do that, sorry, let me kind of back up a little bit. In chapter 1, Paul kind of walks through and he talks about how um, he, he had the gospel and it was given to him on the road to Damascus, and, and God kind of violently collided with him, and then God had great pleasure in, in calling him to go and preach the good news to the Gentiles. And, and so Paul had gone and said, okay, this is this is not a gospel that a man gave to me. It's not a gospel I read in a book. This is a gospel that came as a result of my collision with Jesus Christ. And when people heard what it was that God was doing through me as I preached the gospel to the uncircumcised, they glorified God. They didn't glorify Paul. They glorified God because of it. Now, he continues in his autobiography, and he says, now fast forward 14 years, verse 1, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus with me. I went to Jerusalem because of a revelation, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, and I did that in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain." But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we didn't yield in submission even for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Instead, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do." All right, so what in the world is that all about besides an autobiography of what happened in Paul's life 14 years after he had been given the right hand of fellowship and, a, and it had been agreed upon that he would go and reach the, the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ? He returns to Jerusalem 14 years later. He makes it a point to say, listen, I didn't go because I was summoned back to Jerusalem because I had been a bad boy. It wasn't like he had been called to the principal's office. Or worse, you're up in your bedroom and down in the kitchen, you hear this this call of your name, but it's not just a, oh, Frank, from Dad. It's a, Frank James Taylor, Jr. You know that call? I'm very familiar with it. I've heard it a few times. It's, 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 he went to Jerusalem based on a revelation. So it was God was leading him back to Jerusalem, and he went back to Jerusalem, and he did something that would be considered incredibly risky. He brought with him a man named Titus, who was a Greek, who was a Gentile, an uncircumcised man, and he brought him to Jerusalem, into the the holy city of Judaism, the holy city of those who are fighting against Paul here at the churches of Galatia. He brings with him an uncircumcised man, and, and, and they had to have just grasped their chest out of fear just like a lot of moms in the room have been grasping their chest in fear last week, this week, and weeks to come, that I'm actually going to explain what circumcision is in front of their children. Kids, if you have a question, ask your dad. You're welcome, dads. Pastor Mark, you're welcome too, because I didn't chuck him at you again. Um, <laughs> I'm being nice to him now. Um, the, the idea is this. They, 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 they come into this holy city, and circumcision, that, mean, that means everything to the Jews, that means everything to them. That is the the mark of their Jewish identity. That is the the symbol of their salvation. That's the sign that they are the children of God. And Paul marches into Jerusalem with Titus in tow, who was not one of them. And it's interesting, and and, and I, I can't, I told you this last week too, when I read Paul, sometimes I'm like, dude, come on, so harsh. But, but he says a couple of times, he's like, you know, I went to those who were seemingly influential. Well, you know who he's talking about, right? The apostles. It's like And he's, his point is this. You know, we're all equal. The, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is equal. We're all equal. But they seem to be influential and seem to be the ones who are calling the shots. And so I went to them and I told them, I need to know if I am preaching in vain. Is there something else I should be adding to my message to the Gentiles? And verse 6 says it plainly. Those who seem to be influential added nothing to me. They added no more requirements to me. In fact, verse 3, I think it is, sorry, I have lost my place. Yep, verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, wasn't forced to be circumcised. To so those who seemed to be influential, the apostles of the day, the leaders of the early church, stood and listened to Paul's presentation about his gospel preaching to the Gentiles. And he said, now, am I preaching in vain? Is there something else that needs to be added? And they said, nope. You keep preaching what you're preaching. These Gentiles do not need to follow the Levitical law, in order to be followers of Jesus Christ. And it says they extended to him the hand of fellowship. Now, when you go, Paul, and preach, just remember the poor. And Paul said, oh, absolutely, I was really excited to remember the poor, and I'm going to remember the poor no matter what. So there was nothing else added to the gospel. For you and I, we don't have a problem today with the Levitical law being forced upon us. But we do have a problem, and and I'm going to be very clear, most oftentimes it's in our own hearts We do have a problem in our own hearts with with adding actions to our lives that we think are going to gain us approval or acceptance in God's eyes. So so they're good things, too. That's what makes it difficult. They're good things. So so, uh, this is the frank part. So as I considered this and contemplated this, the the thing that came to mind instantly was my quiet time, my devotions, my, my personal Bible reading. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. You all should be doing it. Again, I said it last week. This, this isn't law. This is life. These are the very words of God who are speaking to you, and, and it's very clear that you get to know him through his word, and so you should be reading your Bible. You should be reading your Bible. But if you're reading your Bible because it's like, okay, I'm going to read this. Good. We're good, right? We're good. That's backwards. What it should be is, man, I am so glad we're good, God. I want to hear from you today. But unfortunately, we get that backwards, and we begin adding good things to our lives, thinking that it's going to bring us some level of acceptance or approval in God's eyes. Maybe for you it's prayer, or <laughs> I, say, I say this with fear that next week we're going to be empty. Worship attendance. attendants. Again, I want you here. I believe there's great value in you being here as a community of believers and sharpening each other. I also believe there's a scriptural mandate for us to gather together as the local body of Christ. And I'm going to be very selfish. I'd rather not preach to empty chairs. So I want you here, but, but when we look at worship attendance as being something that gives us approval in God's eyes, that's a problem. Right behaviors, but wrong beliefs about what those behaviors accomplish for you. So it's, it's almost like, I mean, this, this, is, this is a little bit look, look ridiculous, but, but it's almost as if that way we get into God's presence and God's like, okay, man, uh, okay, I know you're saved and Jesus' blood covers your sins, and we're but as I consider who you are and what it is your life has been doing, I'm just not sure that we're good. And you look at God and say, but God, I did my devotions today. And he says, oh, good, come on in. That's ridiculous, isn't it? But how many of us fall for that trap? Maybe not on the positive side. Usually what happens is this. We fall for that trap when we've missed our Bible reading time for the third day in a row, and what ends up happening is in our souls we're wrestling because God must be angry with me now. We're not good. Your acceptance in God's eyes is not based on what you do. I'm going to close that loop, but it's going to take me a couple minutes to get there, so bear with me. Because the next point as we continue reading in Galatians 2 is that your acceptance in God's eyes isn't based on what you don't do. What you don't do, let me read verses 11 to 14 through chapter 2, verse 11. It says, when Cephas, whose name is, is Peter elsewhere, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I'm going to pause there for a second. It's a little sidebar here. Have you ever been out on a date, maybe a double date, triple date, group date? Could be game night at somebody's house. There's a couple there. And for some reason, something sets one of them off at their spouse. Is there anything more uncomfortable than sitting at a restaurant with two married friends who have decided that they're going to hash out their issues right there in front of you? I propose there is very little more awkward than that. That's not the awkward I enjoy. In case you're wondering, that's the awkward like, yeah, uh, check please. So imagine... Paul, the apostle, standing to Peter, the apostle's face. The idea is we came nose to nose. This wasn't a um, stealthily crafted email. This was, uh, I'm getting in Peter's face. Why? Verse 12, because before certain men came to James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. All right, so what is the awkwardness that happens here? It really comes down to one man. His name is Peter. Peter, I'm telling you, Peter's going to punch me in the face when I get to heaven because <laughs> Peter messes it up time and time again. You read stories about Peter. You're like, what's wrong with you? So, so think about it. This is, this is kind of Peter's um, form. It's his... It's his history. This is what he does all the time. And Peter, Peter's out on the boat. He's with the disciples. The boat's kind of bouncing around a little bit in a storm. It's not a huge storm, but it's a storm. And, and the disciples and Peter are on the boat, and, and then they see this thing in the distance, and they run to the side of the boat. And I'm sure some of the disciples were already there at the side of the boat losing lunch because of the storm. And Peter looks out. And he's like, whoa. And, and Jesus says, hey, don't fear. It's me. It's Jesus. Now, 11 of the dudes were like, that's crazy. Get in the boat. And then there's Peter. I'm coming in with you, Jesus. Now, you got to admire that, right? I mean, Peter gets over the boat, and he starts to walk towards Jesus, and he's locked on to Jesus, and this is Jesus calling Peter to himself, and here comes Peter, his eyes fixed on Jesus for a minute. And then, hey, it's windy. These waves are kind of big. I'm going down, and he hits the one, and Jesus saves him and rescues him. You see, Peter did a wonderful job while his eyes were fixed on Jesus, but then when he allowed his attention to slip onto something else, he was in trouble. I mean, fa- fast forward to the one that we're, we're, we're pretty familiar with. You've got the Last Supper has just occurred, and Jesus says, all of you are going to scatter. You're all going to deny me. You're all going to run away from me. And Peter's like, I don't know about these morons, but I got your back. I will never betray you, Jesus. In fact, I will die for you. And Jesus is like, Man, Peter. The rooster's not even a crow a third time. And you will have already betrayed me. And Jesus is like, never. Peter's like, I'm never gonna betray you, Jesus, never. He gets outside to the court and someone says to him, You know, Are you a Galilean? I think I saw you with Jesus. And Peter says, I I don't know that man. A little while later, another says, you were with him and you have the accent of a Galilean, so we know you were with Jesus. He says, I, I, I don't know that man in there. I got nothing. And as he's trying to leave, another one says, I saw you with the other disciples. And Peter's response is, um, beep, 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 beep. I don't know the man. The rooster crows. And because of the open nature of the court, at that moment, Peter and Jesus' eyes meet. And it says, Peter runs out weeping bitterly. Peter was fine when Jesus was right in front of him, but when the pressure came from somebody else, he kind of melted away. Even if you go to where Peter was restored on the, on the seashore, you know the, the story where, where, where Peter's, uh, Jesus has resurrected, he hasn't ascended yet, and, and Peter's with the boys, he's like, I go a-fishing. I mean, that, that's the good old King James version. It's kind of cool. I go a-fishing. And so Peter gets in his boat, and the boys go with him, and he's out fishing, and he looks to the shore. and They're like, hey, who's that on shore? And it's Jesus. Oh, and Peter, because it's Peter, again, um, without his clothing, takes a dive off the boat, swims to shore. And in my head, I know it probably didn't happen this way, but in my head, I can see Peter like, oh, I'm going to get to Jesus. Oh, I'm going to get to Jesus. And the guys are like rowing the boat. Hey, we're here too, Peter. What's your problem, man? But Peter was there because it's Jesus, and Jesus asks him the three questions. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? And there's more to this. I understand that, but understand this. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Okay. Peter, one day, you are going to die badly. Not going to go well for you. What's Peter's response to that? All right. Okay. What about John? Peter! <laughs> What's your problem? So, so, so what happens is Peter has an ability to take his eyes off of Jesus way too often, which is why I mess with Peter all the time. That's why I poke at him. You know why? Because that's me. that's me there are moments where i am 150 well i'm always 150 miles an hour but there are moments when i'm 150 miles an hour after jesus and nothing is going to distract me and then the smallest most insignificant bump in the road throws me off kilter and i'm going 150 miles an hour in the opposite direction just like peter and now you get to this moment in time where Paul actually has to confront Peter face to face because of his actions. And we're reminded of the story we talked about a few months ago in Acts 10 and 11 where Peter's up on the rooftop and he's hungry and he's, he's getting ready to eat, but he's praying and as he's praying, he falls into a trance and, and God speaks to him and he brings the sheet filled with animals and he says, Peter, take up and eat. And Peter's like, nope, not going to do it. I've messed up enough. I ain't falling for it. And God does it two more times. Peter, here's the food. Take up and eat. No, I'm not doing it. Take up and eat. I'm not going to eat anything that's unclean. And God's message to him was, don't call anything unclean that I've said is clean. And at that moment, the servants of Cornelius come to the door and say, we need to bring you back to our Gentile leader, because we want you to share the gospel. We want you to share the message of hope. We want you to talk about who Jesus really is. And so Peter's like, okay. He shows up. He walks in. There's a faithful crowd of people who are ready to hear the gospel of Jesus. And he, he preaches to them. And they receive it. And they're baptized. And it's an amazing thing. And Peter shares a meal with them. And then Peter gets back to Jerusalem. And the people of Jerusalem just can't believe that he shared a meal with them. You ate with them? What's wrong with you, man? Are you crazy? Jews and Gentiles do not share meals with each other. I mean, what happens if you end up eating something that makes you unclean? What happens if, if they didn't prepare the food in such a way that, that so, so now the food is no longer kosher, it's no longer clean, now, now you, have, you have just sullied yourself and now you're, you're, you're no longer able to worship. What are you thinking? You can't do this. Now, thankfully... God's Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles in that moment and the leaders of Jerusalem were like so tell us what we're supposed to do and, and Peter's response was well God's Holy Spirit was poured out and thankfully the church leaders were like okay I guess that's okay that God did that but now it seems that, that Peter has continued to eat with the Gentiles in these churches of Galatia and why wouldn't you? I mean come on Bacon. Right? So, so, Peter's continuing to eat with the Gentiles. Until this group of people come from, from James, is what it says, from the, the area that James was an elder, a pastor over, and, and when they come, they take this, this stance on the law, and it says you should never eat with the Gentiles, and Peter pulls back from the Gentiles, and he stops eating with the Gentiles, not out of principle, not out of a, a, a doctrinal belief, not out of theological conviction, he backs away from the Gentiles, and he doesn't eat with the Gentiles. Why? Why? Because he feared the circumcision party. And and Paul is having none of it. And Paul gets in his face and does it in a public way. Little sidebar. All of us need to be surrounded by such people who are bold and courageous and love us enough to come to us and speak to us the truth in love. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what position you hold. It doesn't matter how old you are in the faith. You must have people in your circles who are willing to come to you and speak to you truth in love. Well, if they loved me, they wouldn't say anything hard to me. Actually, that's not love. We need to be surrounded by those people because let's be honest every single one of us in this room the 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 lyrics the the phrase in the old hymn come thou found it says we're prone to wander not only is that theologically true but in my life that's experientially true so we must be surrounded by those people the message was very clear that these group of judaizers those who were trying to inflict the Levitical law on the Gentiles so that they might be real believers. The the, the message was clear. You're okay, and you're considered okay, as long as you follow the Levitical law. And and Jewish Christians, you're okay, and you're considered okay, as long as you don't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul's response is, how can you force people to follow the Law. Look at verse 15. We ourselves, Paul's continuing in his confrontation with Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We're not, we're not Gentile sinners, not, not in the, uh, the, the active sinning part, but in the we are not part of the chosen generation, the chosen people of God. So we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So we, we of all people, should know that, that, that we cannot be justified by the works of the law. Paul, Peter, whoever you are, <laughs> You, how could you fall for that? You, how could you fall for that? Many times we, we fall for the, the reason that, well, there's two, there's two, there's control. We want to control other people. And then there's this self-righteousness that just oozes out of us. I do think that even though all of us I'm gonna give everybody the, the benefit of the doubt. All of us would pass the, the, the lie detector test. And we would know that there is nothing we can do when we stand before God that's going to get him to accept us and to be okay with us. There's, there is nothing we can do. But I think practically speaking, and, and, and real life boots to the ground kind of speaking, I, I think what ends up happening is every single one of us in one way, shape, or form, we, we fall for the lie that one day we're gonna stand before God with a list of all the things we didn't do and we're gonna present it and we're gonna say, see, see, see how how holy I lived? I mean, so here, let's, so we're going to show up for God, and we're like, all right. So let's talk about the things I did do, all right? I went to church almost every week. I prayed almost every day. I, I, I carried a, a big old Bible. I read that Bible at least once a week. Okay. My list of good stuff. I didn't, what was the phrase? Drink, smoke, or two, or go with girls who do? <laughs> didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> oh. That's the only thing I can think of now all of a sudden. I didn't, I didn't go to the bar. I, I, I didn't swear at that guy in traffic, even though he deserved it. I, um, I didn't do this. I, okay, so now, God, here you go. Here's my list. Here are the things that I did do. Here are the things I didn't do. So here you go, Lord. This is why I'm righteous. The problem is when God gets your list of righteousnesses, worthless it's just worthless but you know and actually that that's a cheap version of it isn't it see because isaiah 64 6 says that all of our righteousness are like filthy rags and so we don't show up to god and and hand him a list of good things and bad things and the things we did and things we didn't do really what it looks like is this we show up with our bandage Because this is the term, filthy rag. And actually, I'm still cleaning it up a little bit. You're welcome, moms. (laughs) Here I am, Lord, accept me. Well, of course, he's going to be like, yeah, no, we're not going to use that. Thanks. Because your acceptance isn't about what you don't do. It's not about what you do. What we need to understand is this, this wonderful term that Paul uses, is justification. See, our acceptance is found in this justification. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Notice how many times he talks about justification. He says the same thing over and over again. He's a good preacher. 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So how can I experience the acceptance of God in my life? How can I know that God doesn't just love me, that he likes me? It's having a proper understanding of this doctrine of justification. Because when you understand justification, you're going to see that acceptance in God's eyes is not based on what you do, it's not based on what you don't do, it's based on what's been done for you. So one in the world is justification. Let me give you a couple of quick definitions just for time, and and I'm going to be careful. I don't want to keep you too long, but I also don't want to throw you out of here before the good part. So here we go. The opposite of justification is condemnation. Okay, the opposite of justification is condemnation. So if condemn means to declare somebody guilty, then justification means to declare someone innocent, to clear them of all their charges. Here's a fancy definition for those of you who like the, the, the deep ones. Justification is the favorable verdict of God the judge on one who formerly stood condemned and has now been granted a new status of being innocent. It's the favorable verdict of God the judge on one whom, who formerly stood condemned and has now been granted a new status of innocence. Here's another one. This one's, this one's for those of us who are like, read that or are like, yes, I think. Here you go. Easy, ready? Justification, it means this to be viewed by God just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Maybe another picture for you would help. Uh, the story goes, and I did not Snopes it, so I don't know if it's true. The story goes that back in the day, um, Rolls Royce came out with their car, and it was the car. It is the vehicle you will never have a problem with. It will never break down. It will never do you wrong. This Rolls-Royce will never, ever need to be fixed because it's unbreakable. It is the perfect automobile. So a very wealthy fellow in England went and purchased his Rolls-Royce, and then he drove it to France, which isn't a terribly long distance, but it's a a hefty drive, and so he is in France. And while in France, the unthinkable happened, and the Rolls-Royce broke down. And so he got on the phone, and he called the people at Rolls-Royce. He said, hey, my name is such-and-such, and and, and here's my order number. I'm just adding that to the story. I have no idea. But here's my order number. You can see that I purchased this Rolls-Royce, and this thing's never supposed to break. And I am in France, and this thing will not start oh, we're very sorry, Mr. So-and-so. We will get right on it. And so what Rolls-Royce did was they put one of their their top mechanics on an airplane in England. He flew to France. He drove to the place where the man's Rolls-Royce would not start. He got under the hood, and he began tinkering around, and he's like, all right, sorry. We so much apologize that it's now fixed. It's good. And he had no problem with that car for the rest of time. I mean, that thing ran... I don't know, great-great-grandchildren, again, making that part up, I have no idea. The picture is clear, right? The picture is clear. This thing was fixed, it was great. Now, here's the problem. He's in France, and he's waiting for his bill for the repair. That's got to be a big bill. I mean, not making fun of mechanics at all. But taking your car to the mechanic isn't exactly like, hey, here's a five, we good? Right? But here, this fellow, this mechanic, flew from England to France, worked on his car, flew back from France to England. I mean, he's waiting for this bill. I mean, he's a man of means. He's got the money to pay for it, and so he reaches out to, to Rolls-Royce and says, hey, my name is Mr. Such-and-Such. Here's my order number. About two months ago, I had a trouble with my Rolls-Royce, and I had a mechanic fly out here, and I'm sure it's expensive, and I, I want to balance my books, and so I need you to tell me how much I owe you. And the person on the phone said, one moment, sir, let me, let me get my manager, let me make sure I understand the situation. And so he's placed on hold, and, and the, the operator talks to him in, and the operator comes back and says this, I'm sorry, sir, we have no record of anything ever being wrong with your car. Justification. Was there something wrong? Absolutely. Has it been forever settled? absolutely. It's not, it's not that it got, got swept under the rug. It means that God views you as clean and clear because Jesus fulfilled your death sentence in himself. Justified. So how do you know that God loves you? God loved us and sent his son. Absolutely. How do you know that God accepts you because of his passion for you? Look at the end of verse 20. I'm skipping a bunch. I'll go back next week, I promise, because some of this is the most precious verses in Galatians. Verse 20 says I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. How do you know that's good enough, Paul? How do you know how do you know he's pleased with you? How do you know he's accepted you? How do you know you stand before him and God's pleasure is being poured out on you? Because of Jesus' passion for you in this. He loved me and he gave himself for me. God's passion is the world. Yes, that's theologically correct. God's passion is for you. So he paid the price for your sins, and so that right now, in this moment, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and you've relied on Him and Him alone for salvation, right now, in God's eyes, even though the great accuser may continue to bring accusations against you, not if, but when he does bring those accusations against you. And he goes to the ear of God and says, hey, have you seen that one? That one keeps messing up. Have you seen that one? He messed up again. You see that one? He's willfully walking away from the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. You see that one? He's guilty too. You see that one? He's guilty too. God's response is this. Yeah! He deserves hell. Let's see Jesus. It's finished. And paid in full. And God says, that one's mine. Justified. Let's pray together. The Lord, I thank you that your ways are not our ways and that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Because in complete honesty and, and humility, we say that if you were like us, none of us would stand a chance. I thank you for your great mercy and your gracious love for us. I thank you that in Jesus Christ we stand before you innocent. And we know, Lord, not one of us in this room comes to you innocent on our own strength and our own doing. We come to you innocent because of the perfection of Jesus Christ that's been applied to our account. Lord, today I pray for the soul of the one who's been kicking against you trying to earn their way into your presence. Lord, would you humble them even in this moment, cause them to know that they're a sinner and that there is an answer for that sin, and his name is Jesus. And I pray for the one who's sitting here this morning who is wrestling with knowing if you're truly accepting them. Lord, I thank you that in Christ we are forever justified because he rose again from the grave. Lord, may we celebrate that well today. Thank you for loving us and being such a good and gracious Father. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.